Hey everybody, how we all doing? I'm Michael. I'm with Alex as always. How's it going? And we're here with a new episode of Falling Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Good, good. I'm I've been up since three o'clock this morning. I see. That's that's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate because I live across the street from a casino. Yeah. And yeah, I had, do it. yeah, and I had some neighbors come home very drunk and very loudly complain about how somebody keeps parking in their parking space. Hmm. And so I was like, well, I might as well get up and write some more notes for today's podcast, which I'm very, very excited about. And oh also, we'll probably fall asleep about halfway through this. It's going to be great. Sweet. Sure it's going to end well, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, a very good episode we have for you all today. Uh, it's going to be part one of two, most likely, depending on how this goes. And I want to start off, as always, by asking you a question, Alex. Okay. Are you familiar with the concept of environmental storytelling? Yes. Uh, Basically, the idea that rather than looking at the viewer or audience or whoever it is and telling them all of the story that led to the point they're currently seeing at, you sprinkling context clues that naturally exist on the set in props, you know, things like that. Yeah, like props, scenery, music, Mm. basically anything that more or less is can be either, you know, can be visually seen or at least is not uh, spoken to you directly or written down for you directly. Yeah. Environmental storytelling is something that's very important in video games. Uh, it's something that you see in all all visual media. Uh, mm-hmm. You see it in plays, you see it in movies and TV shows, but I think video games really are uh, the format that has taken that and run with it. Right. Uh, I, I think the fact that as an interactive medium, the audience can go and investigate those aspects to any degree they want. Mm-hmm. And really sort of sit with them and deal with them at their own time really helps that. It really, really does. And it really incentivizes developers to like hide little context clues within there for you to discover and learn more about the world as well. Whereas, you know, if it's like a TV show, it might pass within like five seconds and not be noticed by anybody. Right. Uh, do you have a particular favorite game that does like does environmental storytelling well? I mean, it's sort of a cliche answer, but I think Dark Souls probably is one of the strongest, if not the strongest. I think I'd agree with that. I mean, the story by itself is very incomprehensible, or at least... A little bit, yeah. It's also really simple, honestly. Yeah. Like, the the only thing that makes it seem complex is the fact that they don't just give it to you. But once you've, like, used the environmental storytelling and read all of the summaries that there are to be found, it's like, oh, this is really simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true, 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 true. Yeah, Dark Souls, an excellent example of of all that. Uh, one example that comes to mind for me is the Fallout series, particularly mm. either Fallout 3 or Fallout 4. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I mention it is because there are examples of both very good environmental storytelling and very bad environmental yeah. storytelling. Yeah, Like Fallout 3 first starts out very strong by, you know, pulling out and you see Washington, D.C. just absolutely bombed out. You see mm-hmm. the man in power armor. And you already know right away that, okay, something's really wrong with this world. Some sort right. of war or something has happened. And even when you, like, first, like, get out of the vault and explore the overworld, like, if you try to go to any body of water, you instantly get irradiated. And that, of course, helps tie in with the kind of the main central thrust of the plot, which is trying to provide clean water to the capital wasteland. Mm-hmm. You know, your dad's vision and whatnot. Like, it all ties together to help drive the plot forward. Uh, it's also a very bad example because there's a lot of side areas where they do environmental storytelling being like, oh, man, look at these uh, teddy bears doing this thing and they're having a lot of fun, like 
playing Russian roulette and like all these <laughs> other like really weird things that are just feel really out of place and kind of take right. you out of it a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, environmental storytelling, very, very important video games. One company that I think does this really well, Alex, is Nintendo. Hmm. hmm. And I think they do it both in very subtle ways and also ways that are very important to their games, just like to their overall plots. Right. Um, a subtle way that I think is they do it very well is Super Mario Brothers 3. Super okay. Mario Brothers 3 is set up to be like a play. Uh-huh. And you can see that everything from like the opening curtain to even how like the objects are laid out in the in the game. Like the floating platforms look like they're screwed into the background. They right. cast really obvious shadows onto the on what should be a blue sky, like stuff mm-hmm. like that. Right. Like they reinforce like Miyamoto's whole idea that each Mario game is more like like different actors in a play coming together to tell a different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another game that where they just go all out with it is. Breath of the Wild. Right, yeah. Where, like, right from the start, you come out into the land of Hyrule, and you can see that something really bad has happened there with all the destroyed mm-hmm. ruins, all the ancient guardians running around. You get you get the feeling that something very, very bad has happened here. Right, yeah. I, I remember playing through Breath of the Wild. One of my earlier moments was running into um, finding the ruin of, like, sizable house, but, like, clearly burnt out and burned down a long time ago mm-hmm. with a fire mage enemy next to it. <laughs> and it was sort of like, oh, that's that's pretty one-to-one. Yeah, I can see how this happened. That that family had a real bad yeah. day 100, 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It is really cool playing, um, this is a bit of an aside, playing Age of Calamity, kind of the prequel game to mm-hmm. Hyrule, um, to Breath of the Wild. And, like, seeing areas that were clearly destroyed 100 years in the future and, like, okay, no, this is what it looks like when it's actually built out. Right, yeah. And, like, they did a very good job doing the one-to-one so you can actually compare and contrast. I think it was, like, a really, really cool thing they did with that. So, yeah, Nintendo does a very good job with their series, and they do it pretty much with every series. They do a really good job with it, whether it's Pikmin or even Star Fox to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But one series where I think they go above and beyond and I think is central to mm-hmm. the actual story of their games. And the topic of today's episode is Metroid. Yep, yep. Alex, do you have any uh, particular uh, familiarity or have you like, played the Metroid games before? Yes, yeah. I've played Metroid fairly extensively. Um, mm-hmm. Played Metroid Prime a whole lot, Prime 2 and 3, once both. Uh, played, never beat Super Metroid. Same for original Metroid. Beat the remake of Samus Returns mm. uh, and Fusion. So I think I've played every mainline entry other than Other M. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, although I'm very surprised you'd never jumped into Federation Force and played Blast Ball. Are you? Are you surprised by that? <laughs> no, I'm not, because I'm a huge Metroid fan, and even I didn't touch that. No. Uh, that seemed awful. It sure uh, did. Oh, boy. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, I I love Metroid. Metroid is one of my favorite series of all time, and that's a pretty common opinion for a lot of people in at least in like North America in mm-hmm, and just like right. the Western world in general. Uh, Metroid is not a particularly popular series in Japan. Yeah, but but when it's, it comes, go ahead. It's so weird because it's like it's it's got all these Western influences, and it's m- way more popular in the West than in Japan. But most of those games are Japanese developed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the vast majority of them, as it turns out. Yeah, it um, it's it's very interesting that like yeah, this primarily Japanese developed series 
like caught on incredibly strongly in North America and in like no matter what they do, it just wouldn't quite work out in Japan. Yeah. It's past like the first couple of games anyways. Maybe Team Ninja can make it work in Japan. <laughs> Maybe they can. I I wonder if I'm gonna make a to... I'm gonna make a lot of jokes at other ends expense in these episodes. Just be oh. aware of that. <laughs> just be oh. ready. Please, I I'm I'm ready to have it wash over me. Because believe me, I got I got some I got some good material on other M as well. Oh god, that nightmare of a game. But yeah, absolutely love Super Metroid and critically uh, Super Metroid. Absolutely love Metroid mm. in general and like critically, pretty much every Metroid game, even even the very worst ones, have been particularly well received. Mm. Even even other M like at least got like I think it has like a seventy five percent on Metacritic, which I mean yeah, it's not it's, great. It's passable. Yeah, but like that's the thing. Like that's the bar for them is passable. Right. And the top of the chain is like Super Metroid, which at mm-hmm. one point like Electronic Gaming Monthly, which was at one point the biggest magazine in North America, like they put that at number one as their greatest game of all time. Yep. And yeah. that was a list like in the sixth generation, I think. So like PS two era, mm-hmm. like. 3D games were well into their own and like what was, you know, sort of the template of what we think of as modern video games was happening. And yeah, it was still up there. Yeah, totally. And it's it's, it's kind of a selection I don't agree with because number two is Tetris. And it's like, oh, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, the, the answer is Tetris, but Super Metroid, point yeah. is, excellent game. Yep. And yeah, like even from there, like Metroid just in general has always, you know, reviewed very well. It's always been critically well received. And a lot of it has to do with its portrayal of not only its main character but also the environments and the world within metroid like Mm -hmm. metroid on its face is not really a lore heavy series at least not until later like the first three games it's actually very very light on that and it really trades an awful lot on kind of the horror theming it almost has right or really that it does have it yeah metroid 2 and super metroid at least to little kid me were incredibly scary games they're, they do a lot with atmosphere and just unrelenting feeling of isolation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a big reason why I wanted to bring up like environmental storytelling is because I mm-hmm. think I think Metroid doesn't really hit that mark with that. But I think Metroid 2 on, I think they get it to a T. Like I think yeah. there's I think like something like Other M kind of misses the mark with that. But yeah, like, I would say so. But like Metroid Prime hits it. Yeah. Super Metroid absolutely hits it. Uh, Metroid Fusion... I, it, yeah, I don't think it hits it quite as bit for reasons that we'll get to it. They make the game a little less isolated due right. to the introduction of another character, but I think it 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 narratively is strong on its own merits in a different direction. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, like Metroid really loves to tell a story via environmental storytelling and not just throw a ton of dialogue at you. Right. Now, the development of Metroid, uh, we're not going to get into it too much, but it was a little bit fraught at the start. Uh like the team that was behind Metroid uh, at Nintendo, actually, I was having a little bit of difficulty getting it out the door. And uh, in order to actually get it out there, they had to bring in a veteran game designer that had been at Nintendo since 1982, a mm. uh, little man by the name of Yoshinori Sakamoto, mm. who we're going to be talking about extensively. He's he's kind of known as the father of Metroid uh, in a very Kenji Inafune sort of way, where it's like right. it's not really true, but but yeah, you know, you know it's he he's he's going to be the director on the most acclaimed, and also the most hated Metroid game, <laughs> oddly enough. Yeah. And we'll be talking a lot about him when we get to Other M. But, um, yeah, other than that, like, Metroid, 
ended up having a uh, a bit of a rough development cycle, but when it came out, it was pretty well regarded. Now, a lot of the atmosphere around Metroid and like a lot of the setting was inspired by the film Aliens, which I'm mm-hmm. sure is going to be a huge shock uh, once we kind of talk about um, you know the parasitic Metroids and all the other alien creatures that attack Samus in this. Right. Uh, the character Samus herself, uh, a very stoic, um, beautiful woman who's in a, like a power armor, uh, originally was not going to be was originally not going to be a woman. But halfway through the development, somebody just kind of piped up and was like, "Hey, what if we, what if we made the main character a girl?" And they mm-hmm. went, "Ah, eh, sure, I guess." It cost literally zero effort. Cost literally zero effort, and it honestly that little change probably has made her one of the most iconic video game characters ever. Yeah, honestly, because uh, otherwise Samus is. An incredibly blank slave throughout most of the series, in a way that actually really serves her very, very well. Yeah. She comes off as a very stoic, badass character who just gets things done with a very mm-hmm. strong moral center. Uh, she also has like a lot of thoughts and feelings and hopes projected on her because of that as well. Because Right. And like that's for both good and for bad. Um because when when we do get to the point when they do try to actually put a personality on Samus, it's gonna kinda go bad. Yeah. But that, once again, is going to be later when we get to Metroid Fusion and Other M. But in the meantime, I guess we probably should go ahead and start by talking about the story of Metroid. So the story of Metroid, once again, for like the first few games, it's kind of hard to summarize without being a bullet point list. Right. And this is because the first three games have very little in the way of dialogue or just even words. <laughs> and yeah. simply, Yeah. And, and they simply don't rely on a traditional narrative structure. Rather, once again, they really make heavy use of that environmental storytelling to help spur the action forward, produce dread, and provide player motivation. So really what I'm going to be doing with this more is kind of going over the backstory of Metroid with these first couple of games, kind of like help set the tone and whatnot. So Metroid takes place in the year 2000 of the Cosmic Calendar. Earth and various other planets formed Galactic Federation around that time. Um... Not really sure how far in the future this is, but it's the future. Right. So not not much is known about the structure of this government, um, which is a very Nintendo thing to do to not let you know how that's it. That is right. Star Fox. (laughs) But it's set up as a society that values equality among all sentient species and appears to be incredibly large as there are multiple star systems under its control. There is a large and well-structured military force, and they are capable of great scientific endeavors. Now, a lot of the scientific advancement they do, however, is on the back of another ancient civilization called the Chozo. The Chozo are an incredibly advanced and long-living species of bird-like creatures. They're kind of known for their sage-like wisdom and their incredible willingness to share their technology with literally anybody who comes across <laughs> it. <laughs> they kind of just want to give you their shit. Yeah. They're the people who, like got a new microwave and they got, want to give away their old microwave and they're going to give it to you, damn it. So much like the Galactic Federation, not really much is known about this species. Mm-hmm. But despite being long gone by the time Metroid begins, we know arguably more about the society than the Federation. Uh, they were at one point a violent militaristic society, but for one reason or another, they hit a plateau with their technology. This combined with an unexplained decline in their numbers, caused a significant amount of the Chozo to instead embrace a lifestyle of harmony with nature and, and the elements. Choosing to share the technology with whomever they've come across, act as stewards for wayward species, or simply live humble lives amongst nature while abandoning their technology altogether. Uh, we see the latter half uh, more in Metroid Prime, uh, mm-hmm. which 
I should actually caveat this right now. I sort of forgot to do this. I'm going to bring my blame my tired brain on this. Mm. We're not going to be talking about Metroid Prime today. Okay. And the reason being is because Metroid Prime is uh, the actual the actual Metroid Prime series is a very closed off story. Yeah. It has practically no relation to the mainline Metroid story other than there are Metroids and there are space pirates, and that's about it. That's pretty much it. It's also somewhat unclear when in the timeline it happens. Yeah. it's It happens at some point, and things happen, and there's something called Phazon, and it's cool. Yep. And the and, Phazon uh, is very, very important, except outside of the Metroid Prime series. Yeah, you get outside the Metroid Prime series, they're like, Phase what? Phase who? Don't know yeah. it. Yeah, so we're not going to be talking about that uh, today. Uh, when when Metroid Prime finally gets actual footage out there, which with Bayonetta 3 actually being shown <laughs> off, you know, maybe, fingers crossed. Maybe. Could could happen. Could happen. We'll talk about it then. So getting back to uh, getting back to Metroid. Uh, the Chozo, by the time, once again, Metroid happens, are apparently all but extinct. But there are still a handful of them still in existence. Uh, the ruins... However, since like their species is essentially gone, their ruins are all over the place on various planets. And while indecipherable, their technology does lie abandoned, ready to be used by whomever can understand it. Sadly, this was the vast majority of people. A vast majority of people cannot make use of this technology, with one exception, our main character, Samus Aran. When we first meet Samus, she's already an accomplished bounty hunter who often works with the Galactic Federation, taking their most dangerous missions. However, this wasn't always the case. So the following I'm going to explain comes from a manga called Magazine Z, published mm. from 2003 to 2004 that flushes out quite a few elements from Samus's life. Yeah, uh, I've actually read this. Oh, have you? Nice. Yes. Yeah, so the canonical nature of this manga is a bit questionable, but multiple elements from it do show up in games such as Other M, and mm -hmm. similar depictions of scenes from this manga do show up in the, like, the ending slides for both Metroid Zero Mission and Fusion. Right. So I think it's worth talking about. Also, Yoshinoro... Um, Sakamoto worked on it as well. So. Right. So it's it's probably canon whether you want it to be or not. Yeah. What did you think of it, by the way? I, I generally liked it. Um, yeah. I, I thought the story it was telling was good. I don't know if I'm in love with its depiction of Samus, but I don't hate it. It's more just a problem of, like, any characterization of Samus is going to be kind of a rough introduction mm -hmm. because her character in the games is such a blank slate. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, like, you already have in your mind, like, what your ideal Samus is. So, like, any sort of right. depiction is going to be, like, it's going to be kind of contradictory, at least on some level. Right. Yeah, I think that's mostly my opinion of it. Um, the manga really goes over, like, Samus's early life. So you see, mm -hmm. uh, you see a lot more trauma from her and a lot more emotion right. than you, you normally would. But I think in a way that's mostly handled well. Yeah, I agree. So Samus Aran hails from the planet K-2L. She's the daughter of Rodney and Virginian, Virginia Aran, and she was living a relatively normal life until the space pirates heard that the planet was storing a type of fuel called ephlorolite. So led by their leader Ridley, who's a giant space dragon capable of spitting fire and also flying in space, they landed on the planet and murdered everyone, including Samus's parents. Mm. So Samus was the lone survivor and would likely have died on the planet had some of the last remaining Chozo not just sort of happened upon the planet and was like, oh, hmm, hey, there's a girl here. <laughs> Which begs the question, does the Federation not keep track of its planets? You get the feeling that, like, the Federation kind of, like, expanded a little bit beyond their grasp. 
Yeah, fair. And so they're like, well, we can't really cover everything at all, including planets that apparently give us incredibly important fuel. Yeah, sure. So, uh, ah, well, oh, well. Guess, guess they're all dead. Oh, you well. You know what? This, this kind of tracks with space settlement sci-fi. That's, that's fine. Yeah. So, seeing as the Samus was the only survivor, they decided to take her to the planet Zebes, or Zebes. Zebes? Zebes? Unclear. Unclear. I think it actually is pronounced another M, but I've already forgotten its pronunciation. That's fair. So, the planet Zebes, their home, is kind of a hell planet? <laughs> it literally constantly rains acid, is inhospitable to humans, and literally all the wildlife there will try to kill you. The good news, though, is that Chozo, being magical space wizards, had a solution. <laughs> they modified Samus's DNA and in the process made her stronger, faster, and acid rainproof. Good. This also allows her to interface with Chozo technology and not really knowing how to raise a human, <laughs> they decided yeah. to train her to be a warrior instead. Yeah, sure. You know, that works. Yeah, you know. It, honestly, it did. It worked out for the galaxy pretty well. Yeah, honestly. Eventually, at the age of 15, she's gifted with a set of Chozo power armor modified for a human and sets off to make her mark on the galaxy. The Chozo who raised her then subsequently disappear under unknown circumstances. Now, when I said that Samus goes to make her mark on the galaxy, I mean she goes to basically become a child soldier? Yeah, she's 15. That's like pretty standard military age for the United States. <laughs> In World War One, yes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> to, to be fair, my uh, my grandfather did. I think it was like sixteen and lied to get into the in the military mm. during World War Two. So, yeah, this is uh, this is definitely not unknown. Yeah. Also, and, she brought her own power armor. Like, what are you gonna do? Yeah. To be fair, who's gonna say no? <laughs> right? Who's gonna say no? Like, if you go to apply at your local army base and you bring your own tank, like they're gonna be like, yeah, all right. Yeah, wow, you came prepared, huh? Look at that. <laughs> Especially if that tank, like, transforms. Oh, yeah. And they're that like, we don't even know how that's doing that. You seem really great. <laughs> Come aboard, 15-year-old girl who has super strength. Yeah, sure. So Samus almost immediately joins the Federation military, and after a stint in that transitions to becoming a bounty hunter, which it turns out she's really, really good at. Yeah. During this time, however, the space pirates have only become stronger. And I guess I should explain, when I say space pirates, you think like, oh, humans who become pirates. No, space no. pirates is a species. <laughs> it's confusing. It might using multiple species, because they have different appearances in different games. They do. Yeah, and one exp explanation is one of them are Zebestian space pirates, and right. the other are just generic space pirates. Other, yeah. But yeah, it's they all look like very mantis-like, essentially. Yeah. But yeah, they, they, they are all just a species that are led by another species. Right. Space dragon. It's it's weird. It's really just the one space dragon as far as I can tell. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's it, just a single space dragon. It, it, it seems to be that a space dragon enslaved a species and decided to be space pirates. Yeah, they're like, let's just go steal shit. And it's like, rad. Okay, space okay. dragon. Space dragon could fly in space and spit fire in his face, which should be impossible. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so during this time, the space pirates have acquired a powerful biological weapon from an unknown planet, the Metroid. 
So the Metroid is a powerful floating jellyfish the size of a small dog, which I don't know why I decided on that as a reference of my notes, yeah. but you know, it's about the size of a small dog. The Metroid latches onto its prey and literally sucks the life energy out of the creature. They are nearly indestructible, impervious to most weapons fire, but do possess one glaring weakness. They hate the cold. They are very easy to freeze. So the pirates, upon acquiring the Metroid, take up residence on the planet Zeebies and are creating more Metroids with the plan to take over the galaxy. Uh, now, you're probably wondering like, how they potentially got the knowledge to do this, like is really like super smart or whatnot. <laughs> Not quite. No, it turns out that Chozo, in what's going to be a reoccurring theme, <laughs> decided to do take... Um, the science, the sort of tack towards science of, uh, you know, could have, not should have. Right. So they created a organic supercomputer that's literally a giant brain called Mother Brain. Yeah. And then they disappeared. And then, so, like, the pirates show up, and they get in contact with Mother Brain, and Mother Brain, in, like, a survival mechanism, is like, hey, how about I teach you all how to be better pirates? <laughs> <laughs> and then she decides, actually, I really like being a pirate. I'm going to take over as the leader of the space pirates. Right. I'm I'm in charge now, I decided. Yeah. And then everyone, including Ridley's like, yeah, no, Rad, you're real good at this. Down. Yep. So yeah. She's literally a giant brain grafted to a computer inside a glass jar. And she's yep. leading everything from hmm. um this uh mechanical base called Torian in like underneath the surface of Zebes. So the Federation, unable to contend with a brain and his dinosaur buddy, <laughs> tasks Samus to destroy the pirate base. <laughs> Destroy its Metroids and bring peace to the galaxy. It's true. They have no idea how to deal with this. I know, I know. And it's also (laughs) a recurring theme is like the entire Galactic Federation looks at the space pirates, which again, from the word pirate, you assume is like rabble band of cutthroat bandits Mm -hmm. and go, yeah, we don't know. Send in the one person who can just kill all of them. (laughs) Yeah. Send in the walking tank. (laughs) We do not want to deal with this. We don't know how to handle this. <laughs> now, granted, like, the space parts, as we're going to, like, later learn, well, we're not going to learn it here, but, like, in Metroid Prime 3, you technically do have, like, an entire fleet, and, like, do yeah. seem like they're really capable of going toe-to-toe. Yeah, no, they're they a proper military power, and it's weird. It is incredibly <laughs> weird. Like, like, you think someone would do something about this at some point. You would think so, and they they never do. Well, no. I guess I guess they do with Samus, but they never yeah, do like, in a grand oh, scale. Time time to prune them. Mm-hmm. So Samus lands on Zeus and is immediately a terror to the pirates. Yeah, you see, they made the mistake of making their main base inside all the chosen ruins on the planet. Mm, yeah, which in turn meant that Samus could access the artifacts in these ruins and make herself stronger. Yeah. So she proceeds to murder two of their top generals, the aforementioned Ridley, and also another by the name of Craig, who's like a very giant three-eyed dinosaur lizard man who shoots spikes from his stomach. He's like a giant mess. Yeah, he's weird. And I'm like, was he on this planet already? Did Mother Brain find him or did the pirates bring him? What? It's... It's unclear. We just know that he is sentient and he is a general in this in the in their army. Right. Which is funny because like all their generals basically like communicate through screeches and like animal movements. <laughs> yeah. Although Ridley can talk in like human language. That is true. In the in uh, magazine Z, he actually does like yeah. talk to Samus. He just doesn't otherwise. Yeah. Otherwise, he just screeches very loudly. <laughs> so. 
Samus beats him and then goes down, destroys the Metroids, and blows away Mother Brain's, like, casing and, like, lays mm. into her something like 100 missiles, <laughs> killing her, but not before Mother Brain can set the self-destruct sequence Centurion. But Samus manages to escape the pirate base in her ship just as the base explodes. And what that, will also be a recurring theme. Samus is a very destructive person. <laughs> oh, my God. Is Sam- Samus has made <laughs> will make hundreds of if not thousands of species extinct by the end of this. There are planets in her wake. Multiple. There's a plural there for a reason. (laughs) So with that, the original game ends with Samus standing on a lonely planet and a message pops up on screen in all caps. Great, you fulfilled your mission. (laughs) It will revive peace Mm. in space, but it may be invaded by the other Metroid. Pray for a true peace in space. And then in what was kind of a, well, actually, not a kind of, it was a big deal back then. If you beat the game quick enough, Samus' armor then melts away to reveal her human self underneath, revealing that she's a woman. Because up at this point, even in, like, the manuals and whatnot, she's always referred to as he. Right. And the game ends. Which, to be fair about the pronoun thing, my understanding of Japanese is they don't have gendered pronouns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that would have been a localization thing. And as we can tell from that ending screen, localization was not 1989 Nintendo's strong suit. No. Nintendo, by the mid-90s, is going to become top of the game, like, miles ahead of everybody else when it comes to localization. Yeah. But at that point, not as much. Yeah, no. They they were still a pretty small company in in the grand scheme of things. So that's where the game ends, or at least that's where it ends on the Nintendo Entertainment System. For in 2004, this game was remade as Metroid Zero Mission. A hell of a game. Fantastic remake Mm -hmm. and just fantastic Metroid game all around. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely love the game. And it has a little extra coda after this. Uh, After Samus escapes in her ship, she's immediately intercepted by two space pirate space fighters, which is kind of a mouthful, and is shot down, destroying her ship and her power armor, leaving her mostly defenseless in what's also going to become a recurring theme. Mm Mm-hmm. Somewhat luckily for her, she lands next to a pirate battleship docked on Zebe's surface, like the same one that actually right. brought Ridley there, and with no other real option, decides to infiltrate it. So after sneaking through the ship, she happens upon some Chozo ruins that strongly resemble ancient Egyptian <laughs> ruins. Like the Chozo right. have a real like ancient Egypt sort of vibe to them. Yeah. Uh, she manages to make her way to a mural of a Chozo warrior wearing a power armor similar to hers. And, like during this time, she's being like heavily pursued by the space pirates, and like it's a very very tense scene. Yeah, it's actually the one part of the game I don't like as much, just because mm. I don't like when action games force you into stealth segments. Yeah, it's it's definitely a weak part of the game. It's a forced uh, stealth sequence. Right. Like, it, it's tonally, it's really interesting, but gameplay-wise, it's like, okay, it's, it's just stay out of the line of sight yeah. gameplay, and it's like, okay. Yeah, it's it's kind of bad for that. Yeah. One thing is good, though, is that after she completes the trial there, she's imbued with a new version of her power armor. And then you immediately walk outside <laughs> yeah, and murder and all the pirates. destroy the whole place. Yeah, you destroy the pirate battleship. You blow up a mechanized version of Ridley, steal yeah. one of their fighters, and escape. Like, it is such a badass sequence. And, like, it's really, really triumphant good. music is playing. It's, oh, it's so good. So, yeah, that's Metroid. Yep. So, after that, Metroid would see its next sequel on... Or I guess his first sequel in this case, on the Game Boy, which uh, 
is a game that I personally don't like, Metroid 2, The Return of Samus. It's not great, and it's generally regarded as not great, from my understanding. Um, Yeah, because it's a very confusing game as far as its layout is concerned. It's very samey looking because of just what you had to do with the graphics of the Game Boy. Yeah, it, it is heavily limited by the Game Boy's limitations. It is, but one thing I'm going to give this game credit for is that it is a scary game. Mm, yeah. And a big reason is for the conceit of the game. The conceit of it is that you're being sent to the planet SR388, which is where the Metroid originated from, and your job as Sam is just to murder all of them. <laughs> yeah, Federation just said, just go genocide them, all of them. Make them extinct. Yep. And Which, did... you know what? I, I gotta admit, fair. Yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, no, I nip this problem in the bud. The... Yeah. Somebody with clairvoyance saw that, oh, every game's going to involve Metroids in some way, and they're all going to mm-hmm. come back and bite us. We need to get, we need to nip this just, in the butt. Yep, just wipe them out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I think the actual premise of the game works really well here, because as you're running along, you'll just randomly run into Metroids, and like yeah. very harsh music will play, and like they'll happen upon you in ways that like will really take you by surprise. Like I, This is a game that, once again, when I played as a kid, I felt was incredibly scary. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it really accomplishes that very well, even if ultimately I think it's not a very good game. Yeah. So, um, and again, my, my only experience with it is the remake they put on 3DS, um, mm-hmm. which I think they did a lot of interesting things with, but you could still see the underlying design was like, okay, this has pretty extreme pacing problems and like the layout's kind of confusing. And yeah, there's, there's yeah. fundamentally problems here. Yeah, it's a big reason why I like the fan remake a little bit more, AM2R, because yeah, they just yeah. made it into, like, a Super Metroid, Metroid Zero Mission thing with right. still overlaying, like, Metroid 2 on top of it. Right. And I personally feel that works better. Some people disagree with that, but mm. but either way, it's, it's, it's an interesting game, and it's also by far the simplest one to sum up. Right. Uh, Metroid 2 takes place shortly after the events of Metroid. So once again, Galactic Federation's obviously a little spooked about the energy jellyfish that threatened all life in the galaxy that one time. And so after discovering that they're from the planet SR388, they're like, let's send Samus down there and hunt that species to extinction. Right. Now, this seems like it should be a very difficult task to do because it's a giant planet and they're Metroids. They're the apex predator. Mm-hmm. But it turns out there's only like 40 of them actually living on the planet. So it's not a big deal. Yeah. Oh, that's the funny thing about Apex Predators. There usually aren't a lot of them in an ecosystem. Yeah, that's a good point. True, 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 true. So upon arriving there, Samus discovers the Metroids she had previously thought might as well have been children. Because it turns Mm. out the Metroids have a very complicated life cycle of, like, multiple molting periods and evolution. So they start out as very dangerous energy-sucking creatures that we all know and love. But then they start to evolve into, like, tougher, like, more armored forms later in life. And eventually, those forms evolve into, like, ones that can shoot lightning? Yeah. I think their evolution is partially influenced by the creatures they drain. Hmm. Maybe. That, I might be making that up. It's hard to say. If it is, then they don't deviate from the standard four to five forms that we see too much. No. But, um, I mean, it would make sense given the alien influence, right? The right, entire right. series has. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they eventually, like, develop, like, a bipedal dinosaur-like creature that possesses, like, immense power and armor to the point that Samus is literally the only person who can stop him. So, right. So, like, Samus does exactly that, eliminating the Metroids, including their queen, which is, like, an even larger turtle-like creature, and seemingly making the Metroids extinct, or so one would think. As Samus makes her way back to her ship, she happens upon a Metroid egg. Upon this encounter, it hatches, and a baby Metroid, much like a duckling, sees Samus for the first time and immediately imprints on her. 
Samus is kind of unable to bring herself to destroy this last Metroid, and instead decides to take it to the Federation to see if they can use the Metroid for good. I'm going to spoil things. They're not <laughs> going to use it for good. <laughs> yeah. So that's the end of Metroid 2, though just like the first game, Metroid 2 does get a remake that expands on the story and adds an also an unnecessary fight with Ridley. Yeah, it's kind of a cool fight. It is. I, it's pretty unnecessary. It is. However, we're going to actually wait until the very end to discuss what those changes are because they're like more like backstory lore things that get changed. Right. Because those like are going to seemingly tie into the upcoming Metroid Dread. So it just kind of makes more sense to leave them to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially since they also involve in the since they also involve uh, Metroid Fusion spoilers as well, right? So yeah, that's Metroid Two, and that leads us to the third game, Super Metroid, a hell of a game. Yep, pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. A game I've beaten probably somewhere close to hundred times at this point. Mm. So Super Metroid takes place immediately, and I do mean immediately after Metroid Two. Right on the ride home. Yep, literally. And for the first time, we actually have Samus speaking, or at least text appears on screen as in her words. Right. She describes her previous adventures and her dropping off the Metroid for the weekend at Grandpa Federation's cool space research station. It turns out the Metroids have excellent potential for energy production, which personally seems morally wrong, but whatever. Yeah, you know. They're space jellyfish. They're space jellyfish. Samus hangs out just long enough to make sure the scientists don't need anything else and then leaves to go on further adventures. Unfortunately, she doesn't leave for more than five seconds before getting a distress signal that the station is under attack. <laughs> Which I'm sure she just throws her hands up and is like, I don't, I don't know why I even bother. Yeah. I don't know so, why she left the station. I feel like she should have just stayed there for a while. Yeah, right? She really should have. So upon arrival, she finds the power is down, all the scientists are dead, but the Metroid is okay in the shiny glass capsule. Mm-hmm. I love Sierra Station so much. Like, the opening mm-hmm. of this game is so oh, it's good. It's really good. Because, like, when you discover, like, the baby Metroid is safe and sound, you just see some red eyes pop up, and mm-hmm. Ridley shows up, and, like, his music starts playing, and it's, mm-hmm. oh, it's so hot. So, he has Which, the Met- ag- again, at this point, you had no idea Ridley was still alive. Yeah, you had no idea. Like, this is, Ridley doesn't show up in OG Metroid 2 at all. Right. So, him showing up here is like, oh, shit, this is bad. Also, he's much bigger looking than he was in OG Metroid. Oh, yeah, 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 much, much bigger. And also, you can't just stand underneath this platform and shoot up at him. Also that. So, uh, he's holding the Metroid in his grasp, and a short fight ensues before Ridley realizes he's bit off a little bit more than he can chew. Mm-hmm. And then he punches his way through the station walls and just flies away. This sadly causes the station to fall apart and start to explode, but Samus mm-hmm. is able to escape just in the nick of time. So Samus takes off after Ridley and tracks him back to the planet Zeebies. Once again, the environmental storytelling of this game is fantastic because when you arrive, the planet seems dead. Like it's just Mm -hmm. raining acid. You go down into old terrain and you see like Mother Brain's like old broken capsule and everything's all destroyed and messed up. Mm -hmm. Like you go down the old escape shaft that was in Metroid. Like it's so good. You go back to the first, uh, the very first area in Metroid and get your first upgrade. And then like, tracking lights show up and you're like oh this seems kind of bad what's mm-hmm. going on here so like she does that she goes back up and then all of a sudden like she gets ambushed by a ton of space pirates and it's here that samus makes the discovery that the pirates have somehow managed to rebuild not only is ridley back but so is Craid and even mother brain and they're busy making a bunch of new metroids as well so samus now very angry <laughs> decides she's going to kill them all yep yep 
And that's what she does. She murders Craig, kills a ghost squid named Fantoon, electrocutes a horrifying fish monster named Dragon, who has like like skulls embedded on him and everything. He's horrifying. Yeah, looking. it's weird. It's really weird. <laughs> Before tracking down Ridley down in his lair, she kills Ridley, only to discover the now broken capsule containing the, bro- the baby Metroid, or, you know, did contain the baby Metroid in this case. Right. So Samus is now able to make her way down to Turian to end Mother Brain once and for all. Upon her arrival, she murders every non-baby Metroid she encounters, mm-hmm. and she gets to, like, this weird kind of, like, almost, like, sandy sort of place, and she sees a bunch of dried out husks of animals, pirates, and, like, everything in between. <laughs> and in kind of a horrifying sequence, she sees a giant wooden creature immediately get taken down by a giant Metroid. Yep. Perhaps some sort of super Metroid, if you will. <laughs> nice. Thank you. I'm very proud of that. After draining the life from this creature, it immediately latches onto Samus and nearly kills her, only to let go at the last minute. It makes some cooing noises, and Samus realizes it's the baby Metroid, now very big for some reason. <laughs> Apparently, this was its life cycle. Apparently, it was. Its life cycle was, I'm going to hit the gym and get swole. It then flies off to uh, somewhere. Yep. So Samus essentially limps the Mother Brain's capsule and proceeds to blow it apart just like last time, and her brain falls to the ground seemingly harmlessly, like... Mother Brain's dead. Right. Ex- except somehow, some way, it either grows a horrifying body or gets attached to one. <laughs> like, it's, it opens up a mouth and immediately roars, like, attacks Samus. It's a horrifying thing. Yeah, it's it's really weird. hmm So Samus is able to hold her own until Mother Brain attacks, like, a rainbow-colored beam from her eye. <laughs> a beam so powerful it pins Samus against the wall. And she's, like, and when she lands, she's unable to stand up under her own power. And then Mother Brain steps up for the kill. Only for the baby Metroid to show up, latch on the Mother Brain, and seemingly drain the life out of her. The Metroid then begins to give that energy to Samus. But as she does so, Mother Brain wakes up and attacks again. So the Metroid, like, takes a beating, protecting Samus while Samus, like, you know, recovers. And the Metroid tries to go in for one last attack, only to be ripped apart by a blast from Mother Brain. The exploding remains fall into Samus and imbue her with a ton of power. And in another, this game is full of so many really great sequences. Yeah. Like her arm cannon gets the ability to fire these rainbow beams called hyper beams. Mm-hmm. And they're so powerful that when they hit Mother Brain, they like basically launch her head back like an uppercut. It is so satisfying. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Yeah. And before long, she blows apart, leaving just her lifeless head behind. Unfortunately, this somehow sets off a self-destruct <laughs> sequence for the entire planet. Yep. So Samus is able to barely escape just in time for the entire planet's Zevas to explode, leaving nothing behind but dust. Unless you saved, like, a couple of weird little space gremlins and a space ostrich. Then they also leave as well. Yeah, that can happen. Yeah, it's it's a very weird Easter egg aside that for some reason is going to have plot ramifications for later. So I kind of have to just very badly shoehorn that in right there. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's Super Metroid. Absolutely great game that I absolutely, absolutely love. Yeah. So yeah, Super Metroid, though, kind of spells a bit of an end, at least for like the mainline Metroid series, as far as being kind of um, very isolating adventures. Right. Because from here on out, there's going to be two more games that we're going to be talking about, and they're going to be far more plot heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big reason is because the main director of these games is going to really want to tell you all about Samus, about her backstory, and kind of dive into that, which admittedly is things that I think a lot of fans did want at the time. Yeah, I think so. And I 
I don't think it is a terrible idea on its own merit. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a matter of, okay, you've got to execute that very well at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's, like, kind of questionable if they're going to really be able to, like, pull that off, right? Yeah. And as we're going to see next episode, I I think for the most part in the first game we're going to talk about, they do. And in the second game, they do not. Oh, my God, they do not. Oh, boy. In fact, we see if if nothing else outright character assassination happen. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. And it's honestly really too bad because I— well, I, I do think it's a kind of an interesting tack they sort of do. Like, I really love, like, that the isolation that the first three Metroid games give you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. while Retro Studios with Metroid Prime would sort of sort of bring that back, at least with the first game, Metroid, right. first Metroid Prime is very much in that vein. Yeah. Like, even they would kind of go away from that, though, with 2 and 3. I think 2 still had a fair amount of that. 3 definitely had less of it. Yeah, 3 was... Three had a lot of other bounty hunters talking at Samus, which is really yeah. weird. But that's for that's for when we talk about Metroid Prime at some point in the future. Right. But yeah. Alex, how are you feeling right now? I feel pretty good. Um, th- this is the part of the series that I really like and have nothing bad to say about. Yes. Other than two was kind of weird, but still interesting. Yeah, exactly. Same here. This is this is uh, just like the Star Fox episode. <laughs> right. Where it's like we yeah. start out by lulling you all into a false sense of security that we're going to talk about nothing but good games. Yep. And, <laughs> and then, then comes that one. And you're like, oh, no. Oh, oh, dear. But that's going to be for next week as we dive into Metroid Fusion and, well, the game known as Metroid Other M, a game so, so notorious that there were all you have to do is speak its name to a Nintendo fan, and boy, mm-hmm. they are going to have some opinions on it. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, everybody, we're going to go ahead and see you all next week. If you, Of course, if you want to see other episodes of Falling Through Plot Holes, you know, go to ftp.podbean.com or search for Falling Through Plot Holes on Apple Podcast or Google Play or YouTube as well. We're on there as well. It's great. Or look for FTP. You'll probably find us. Maybe. I don't know. Who we're knows? Hopefully we're, hopefully we're still SEOing well. There's only one way to find out. Only one way to find out. And that's why looking up more episodes and listening to these. Yeah. Take care, everybody. Take care.